This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hey guys, welcome to the Hero Academy podcast, the place where you can celebrate and highlight our frontline heroes, people such as nurses, firemen, EMS, police officers, and military are all heroes without capes. I don't care about politics, only positivity and purpose. I only care about those that have chosen to serve our society. I believe in collaboration over competition. Here, you'll learn the secrets and strategies that let ordinary people become extraordinary inside of their purpose. Sometimes we'll throw in some simple side hustles that everyday regular people are doing, things that you could do to make some extra money, especially if you're starting to think about retirement and what's next. Inside this podcast each week, you'll learn from people like you that were working full time but still found the time to create a course grow a big team, create a coaching program, a large audience, or a profitable side hustle. The steps they took, their backstories, and how they overcame their burnout that they were facing. The perfect blend of mindset and techniques. Carpe diem. Now let's get your dream lit for your freedom. I'm your host and coach, Super Dave. Let's go. Hello, my extended family, and thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Hero Academy podcast. If you are on the front lines as a police officer, fireman, EMS, military, or medical professional, healthcare worker, then you are in the right place, and this show is for you. This week, I'd like to introduce you to my guest and my friend, Dennis Nair. Uh, I will let you take it away from there. You can introduce yourself, Dennis. Go ahead. Dave, starting off, thanks for having me. It's always great to you know, help uh, answer questions on law enforcement and talk to, you know, our audiences and and share whatever we can. So many thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. No problem. No problem. So tell us, uh, tell us about your career. You retired now? Yeah, so I'm retired. You know, I did 25 years. Um, I um, came up through the ranks. I served pretty much in every rank. Um, Finished off as a chief in my first agency for about five years and then retired Missed the um, the the mission of, of active law enforcement. Went back. Um, was a chief a second time, um, and you know, obviously, there's lots of challenges in in every rank within law enforcement. Chief, it just has a unique set of responsibilities because there's just so much you're responsible for all the time, every day. Uh, doesn't matter if it's three in the morning or three in the afternoon. Um, but it, it it definitely gave me a really good platform to do what I'm doing now, which is super important. And um, I, I teach for a master's program. It's called LEPSL, the Law Enforcement and Public Safety Leadership Master's Degree Program, which is taught by the University of San Diego. Um, and it's a completely online program, but it's great because I have law enforcement leaders, everyone from officer through chief um, from across the country in, in the classes. And we really get to talk about what's most important in today's law enforcement. And I know it's some of the things you and I are going to talk about, but you know, whether it's courses on on leadership or wellness um, or, you know, data fluency or budget and finance. I mean, they're all just super, super important. And um, so I love the fact that my background now gives me a great platform to do that. So uh, what state are you in? I live in New York State. Um, beautiful right now, this time of year. Um, 
the last um, winter, not so much so, but um, right upstate New York. Okay, and what state did you work in as as a chief? New York. Oh, you worked in New York. Okay. Yes. And how many um, in both of those roles? How many members were in those departments? Um, both um, small, medium sized agencies. The first one was twenty nine sworn. The second one was around. 70 sworn. It had been upwards in the 80s, but through attrition and staffing cuts, um, when I was there, it was around 70 sworn, um, which are really good sized agencies because you get to, you know, know all the people that you're working with and through. And then, you know, you um, really are representative and reflective of most of the 18,000 police agencies throughout our country. You know, there's not too many that are New York City 18, or, or 18, there's no 000, New York City. 18,000 agencies? Yeah, we have 18,000 agencies, give or take, throughout the country. And you have, you know, New York City, which is obviously 30,000 sworn. And there's there's no it other... Was 40, it was 40 when I joined. They're, they're down in numbers by a lot. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, then you're right. That is... But either way, so, so significant. And then, you know, you're, you have your LAPDs on the West Coast with like around 10,000. But most of the agencies, if you look at them... They're really smaller agencies, middle-sized agencies that really make up the composite of policing in the United States. So I was fortunate to serve in um, agencies like that. How long did you do on patrol? Um, so I spent my first eight and a half years on patrol. And I think that's a really good question because, you know, to be able to do the job as a police chief, you really have to have spent your time on the factory floor, so to speak. You have to know what it's like to deal with volatile situations, um, you know, people who are going through their worst moments, you know, exposure to working midnight to eight in the morning, which I did for about 10 years. Oh um, all of that is really important because if you're going to lead in any capacity, you really have to understand very well the jobs below you. And um, so I did that. And then, um, you know, getting, when I got promoted to first line supervisor as a sergeant, um, you know, there was another three and a half years on, on the midnight shift. So, um, or two and a half, I forget going back, but, you know, 10 years or so in total, but, um, as patrol, my foundation, that was really a good third of my career. I had so much fun on patrol. I stayed a little too long. Uh, I did six years on the mids. I was telling you before we hopped on live that, uh, I used to work four on four off 10 hour shifts. And I love that schedule. I just hated that it was on the overnight. I, I wish they had that schedule during the day. I, I would have probably never left patrol, you know? Yeah. Patrol was, again, that's like really where if you want to get in law enforcement, that's where you're really exposed to so much. And then when you go to the midnights and overnights, then it's really, you know, because you have, you know, obviously usually there's some sort of alcohol involvement in a lot of the calls you go on or just some things that are the nature of those hours are just um, um, very much akin to why um, policing is needed. Yeah, but, the, freaks, well, the freaks come out at night. <laughs> well, I, well, what I'll say is this. I'll say that those hours are very difficult because you do them. And, and, and I think, you know, for the listeners, until until you've done like not just doing like an all nighter or, you know, one midnight, but consistently starting your day at that hour when everyone else is sleeping and your circadian rhythm goes off, you're just, your, your exposure to just the not so nice parts of society increases. So those are the challenges. And, and unless you've done them, people truly could never understand what we're trying to, what you and I are talking about. 
how did you uh, adjust your sleep on your days off? Did you kind of stay in a, see some people, they would get their, they'd work their last shift, their last day. And then the next day they would shift around to a day schedule. And I never really did that. It was tough. That's a, that's a really good question because, you know, I was young then, you know, when I became a police officer, I was 22 years old and, Me you too. know, you have all, all the energy in the world and, you know, you have to try to like schedule in sleep because what happens is, especially in the summer, you get off your midnight shift in the morning and you have the whole day ahead of you. And if it's a nice day and you're doing something, you don't you want know, to go to sleep, right? You, you have family and friends and, you know, you just, you have things. So it becomes a point where, okay, you know, you got to take a time right, from these hours you're sleeping, usually catch a nap. Um, at least I used to try to take a nap at least to an hour or two before shift, even though I slept during the day, just because I wanted to be alert. I mean, those hours are tough hours. So I at least always wanted to start them off as fresh as possible. So one of the things that I talk about is uh, wellness and definitely officer wellness. And sleep is probably the biggest factor that it, it's hard to control when you uh, get a late call and you're stuck at work for an additional, uh, you know, whatever it is, five, 10 hours. And then you have to go home and catch a few hours sleep before you go back and do it again. And um, like I was saying, on my last day, I'd finish up at eight in the morning or seven in the morning. And then I would try and get, I would get the kids on the bus and then I would try to get to sleep as quickly as possible. And I typically was averaging about six and a half to seven hours sleep. Um, because the kids were in school. So I was fortunate in that way. And then I'd be able to get up a little while after they got home and I always had dinner at home. So I actually loved the schedule. Um, always home for dinner, you know, now working 5 PM to 1 AM, you miss a lot of dinners and that sucks. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, wellness is key. I mean, one of the things we talked about offline about one of the reasons I really wanted to come on here, too, and, and we'll probably talk about a little more throughout, but the wellness is such an important component because we, historically it was always you'd talk to officer safety and has really had the connotation of tactics and wear your body armor and, you know, wear your seatbelt when you drive and, you know, make sure you're, you know, your arrest and control techniques are good and your head's on a swivel and all that. But Safety and wellness is actually also has a lot to do with what you do for your health, that you're coming into work refreshed. And if you're working tons of overtime and you're not sleeping right and you're not eating right, those are basic biological needs. And if they're not being met, what occurs is you have an officer who's, let's just say on the lowest level, maybe they're a little irritable and that's going to not equate to a good community engagement or community um relationship with whomever they speak with on that evening and maybe they won't be as sharp so they'll miss some danger signs or cues when someone maybe is starting to display some predictors of maybe potential resistance or or assaultive behavior um so when we look wellness i mean really shift design shift schedules sleep making sure officers aren't working ridiculous amounts of overtime without rest that's all important and like we were saying you're working and now you're maybe you've already did a double shift and now you get stuck over. That's a concern because the decision-making is like someone's making decisions when they're intoxicated, sometimes worse. I recently did a 19 hour shift <laughs> and my girl asked me, how are you still on your feet? 
And I said, I'm making money. That's how I'm on my feet. <laughs> but it's not good. It's definitely, it's not, I know it's not good for you. For sure. And, you know, when we look at like, you know, we look at liability and risk management, should there ever be some sort of officer involved shooting or some bad incident that occurs, even if the officer's actions were accurate, when it comes into play, if they work 19 hours, that's going to be a, a huge issue. Um, so from a, a leadership and administrative level, those are things we want to try to control for. And, and it's getting tougher now because it's hard when you're in the middle of an investigation or that serious call comes in and maybe you're maintaining a perimeter or traffic safety or something. I was just going to ask you, were you ever part of an investigative unit or like homicide unit? Um, I, I was a detective. I was an interim detective sergeant um, for a short time, but most of my time was spent in the patrol ranks. Um, so um, that those investigative scenarios, I always used to refer to someone with a higher level of expertise in that field. Because I was going to say, sometimes when you're in the middle of an investigation, especially with like a serious crime, like a rape or a homicide case, uh, those investigations, once they start, they just keep unraveling. And, and then and then you need to go to a judge's house to get a search warrant. And then you need to go execute the search warrant because the evidence could disappear. So sometimes I've heard of some homicide guys being at work for 48 hours straight. Yeah, and that's really tough. And and what I'll say, and, and I'm glad we could talk about this, and I could share, like, so from a, a chief or leadership role, like, what I'd want to know if I knew some serious crime like that is, what do we have for relief plans in place? Who do we have that could come in, give officer or de investigator detective A, let him go home, let him get five, eight hours sleep, then come back in? Because even though they're there, the quality of what they're doing is surely going to suffer and things will be missed. And even though it seems like, well, if they leave, then something will fall through the cracks. It'll actually be the opposite. Things will get done and, you know, maybe in an evidence custody and control situation, something will be missed or not handled properly. Um, maybe something in the search warrant won't be included that needs to be. So there's all these things that from a leadership supervisory capacity, I would be working on what can we do to keep some relief in there and then cycle people in and out. But you're right. When an investigation like that happens, I know full well that I'd be briefed and I was like, where are we at with it? And those are the things that I would also be thinking in terms of the actual investigation. Yeah, 10 years on the midnights, you had to have seen something crazy in your time. Do you, are there any stories that like you tell at the barbecue or at the family party and they're like, tell that story where it's like, it's so unbelievable if <laughs> you had to be there to believe it? You know, there's so many that is funny that like oftentimes, like when you do a career in law enforcement, you forget a lot of them until someone says something that reminds you. But I, one that always stands out is just on Halloween because Halloween, you know, I was in both cities I work, you know, we're busy bustling small, small, big cities or Big, small cities, small, big cities, however you want to say I know what you mean. And just lots of activity. And Halloween, it was always like people would drink too much and do silly things, but they'd all be dressed up in these crazy costumes and they'd be getting arrested for things that were, you know, disorderly conduct or, <laughs> or assaults or criminal mischiefs or things that, and they'd be being booked and they had people dressed up as like, um, like the mummy or, or, <laughs> or like Tweety Bird or just all of these cartoon characters and it was just like you couldn't make this stuff up 
Um, and it just happened because it was Halloween. So Halloween was always, you never knew what you're going to get, but you knew there'd usually be some humor involved. Where I live, they have a um, pub crawl. They probably do this in most cities in December where people are dressed up in Santa costumes and someone always gets locked up looking like Santa. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy because they, you know, I would hope that a child never sees that image because it would destroy the innocence and the beauty of, you know, Santa Claus and the child's eyes. But you're right. It's and like I, I look at the examples I was just given, you know, you have like Batman coming in and like part of the costume is torn because Batman picked a fight with um with the wrong um, cop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, he picked it. He picked a fight with like. um um, the Steve Puff Marshmallow Man or something oh, like okay. that. <laughs> you know, and and so the, the police just came there and there's a superhero in like a tattered outfit. And, you know, it's just silly stuff like that. I mean, it just was um, Halloween just brought out some very unique situations. So uh, what'd you go to school for? Um, I got my associates and, you know, I took the traditional path, my associates in criminal justice, because I knew I was always going to be, be a police officer. I wound up getting my bachelor's degree in political science, and um, I really didn't understand political science. I just knew it was a, a a bachelor's degree that a lot of people who had their associate's degree, it transitioned very well into, and um, and it was good because I learned a lot about like foreign policy, international relations, government, constitutional, all the things that are really our society's predicated on. Um, and then I got my master's degree. My master's degree I got in the topic, the program that I teach for, and it's law enforcement and public safety leadership. And what that is, it's in criminal justice at an advanced, at a master's level is really good, I feel, if you're just going to be teaching criminal justice. But the program that I got my master's in was just so um, relevant and applicable to modern day policing. You know, like I would be studying public safety or constitutional law, or um, like I think I mentioned earlier, like data fluency or a contemporary issues course that would cover everything from recruitment and retention officer wellness leadership um did you know, your did your uh did your schooling help you with promotional exams or was it the reverse did the promotional exams help you with the subjects that you were studying that's a really good question i will say this what i think that higher education does is it creates a very good ability to write and 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 read well and, and and comprehend information. I think it also helps with critical thinking. Because if you look at police work, police work is all about critical thinking and 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 how do you how do you solve a situation without having to resort to force if there's another way possible? How do you help a situation between two neighbors who are just in a disagreement? How do you help a child if you go there who doesn't want to listen to his parents and everything in between? You know, um, the critical thinking part is huge, and that's what I think an advanced education does. It it helps you think critically, especially like at the master's level where you're doing research and you're you're not just regurgitating information. You're you're making points, but they're based on research and and substantiating those points. So, I think that's where the value is. Um, I think you know there's lots of smart people out there who don't have the, the degree or letters after their name, but I think in now in modern in our policing now. Police officers of, of every rank and division, they need whatever they can to help them um, do their job. And, and that's why I'm always a proponent of, of higher ed. I spoke to a young officer who said he was going back to school 
because he plans on taking the sergeant, lieutenant, and captain test. And he said, when it comes time for promotion past captain, he doesn't want to be passed up because he doesn't have the uh, master's or the bachelor's. So he said he's going back to school. Uh, he's also in the Coast Guard, so he's always busy. He's a volunteer fireman, uh, full-time police officer, and reserve Coast Guard. <laughs> yeah, that's my head spinning thinking about that. He uh, is quite busy. What, what I'll say with that is he is no correct. Kids. He has no kids, though. Okay, so he does yeah. have a little leeway there then to get there. But that's a lot for anyone. But what I'll say is you're correct. If I'm if saying I'm... Um, on a, uh, the panel, obviously, uh, uh, as the person who's going to make a decision and who we're going to promote to a high level, if all things are equal and then one person has that master's degree, that person with the master's degree, they're going to probably get the position unless someone else has an amazing leadership acumen or, or or some specialized knowledge. But again, if everything was equal, it's that master's degree. Because when I look at that, again, it, it doesn't tell the whole picture, but it shows, okay, someone is disciplined that they could persevere through that and meet all the requirements of hopefully a stringent program. I would assume that they can read and write well, because in our profession or law enforcement in general, what you can put on, how you can express yourself both orally and in writing speaks volumes, whether it's in a, a court filing or whether in a memo to the, to the chief or the city manager or mayor, or if you're writing a, an editorial to the newspaper, whatever, or even an email. But I, I think, you know, those are some things that we know are derived from having that advanced degree. So your your colleague is correct. Having that degree, it will definitely help um, put him ahead in that playing field. I um, am not a big proponent of school. <laughs> I am not a big proponent of higher education. I'm a big proponent of like I, I'm focused more on business and um, I'm a big proponent of going in the direction that you like, as you know, it's not for everyone. You, like some people, they feel like that's the only route. And um, obviously it's not because I have a friend that's super successful. He's a high school dropout and he has a $5 million business. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, it's that crazy. does. And, and I, you know what? So that does happen. And there are people who maybe they have a, a, a strong um, desire. They want to go into um, electrical or, or plumbing, or maybe they want to, you know, do something that's more of a trade or a skill. And they're, again, they're, they're, they're going to be getting education. It's just going to be a different path. And, and I, what I will say though, is I think though, that entrepreneur or that business person, though, that's an amazing story. And, and that does happen. It's sometimes fewer and far between. Yes. But I think, that if someone just goes the academic route by themselves, then that's not always, they can't apply it in real life. And then it just becomes, they have this knowledge, but they can't, they can't create this potential, take this potential energy and create kinetic energy if we use that analogy. But I think it be, it, it creates a great synergy when someone has skills and desires, and then they also have the academics behind them. And but the again, ability to apply those academics. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think it should be a circle that the academics should be driven by the practical, but the practical should um, be driven by the theoretical so that people are working smarter, not harder, that they're using research and like evidence-based um, um, examples of things to 
to become successful. Um, so yeah, so I, th I think anything in the silo is, is really not good. Um, there's people who, you know, have academic knowledge, but no real life experience. And like we were talking, working midnight to eight, you can do all this research and study and on sleep and sleep patterns. But and, until you do it, <laughs> until you do it, you're not going to understand it. So again, I, I think again, the perfect scenario is where they're both intertwined, where you understand the craft and the trade, but you always pursue the academics to make you better at it. And, and, and that cycle goes on. And I think that creates a good product. So someone that has the Juris Doctorate, is that above a master's level? I, yeah, because that's actually, a, instead of, I don't think, and for a law degree, they don't call it a PhD, um, which is like a philosophy doctorate. They call it a JD. Right, a Juris Doctorate. So, and, and law school is um, that's challenging. That's, it's a great degree, I think, because it opens a lot of doors for people to do, you know, a lot of what they, you know, a lot of what is, is needed and whether it's corporate or public safety or private. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a step above the master's level. I remember one of my instructors was a retired New York City, whatever he was, maybe he was a detective. I don't remember what he was, but uh, I remember one of my instructors had his JD behind his name. I think you're muted. Somehow we lost some sound. Oh, no. There you are. You're back. Oh, okay. It you're must back. have been. Must have been um, the internet gremlins. Yeah, well, you're back. <laughs> I said one of my college instructors had the JD behind his name. And I, I never forgot that. Uh, it was very impressive to me. But I never knew what it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what's interesting? And I'll say this is another value add, I think. As police officers, again, whatever rank, you know when someone knows what they're talking about when they don't sometimes you know when we're we're trying to express ourselves to maybe those outside law enforcement having those letters after your name actually has value because it just makes you more credible um even if everything you say is the same as someone would say without that juris doctorate or advanced degree or when you have that you can actually it shows that you're not just talking from um experience that might not have like uh a high validity or that it could be replicated. But when you're talking uh, with with the academic experience, it's it sometimes just amplifies and makes a higher level of believability and credibility and in, in whatever it is you're trying to express. So that's just big, another, another value add, in my opinion. Are you a big reader? Yes. You are. I had a feeling because you're very articulate. So I and how about writing? Do you write a lot now yes. in your current role? I do. Yes. Um, well, I do. I both write, um, you know, I consult on the sides as well. And when you consult, it's not about just going somewhere and looking at it and talking to someone about what you find. You have to write it up in a very uh, articulate manner that makes sense, that flows, that has source sightings so that you're substantiating information you put in there, whether it's data driven or whatever. Um, so, yeah, you have to. And then the program where that I instruct you know, I'm always grading papers. And at the master's level, I was saying that people have to come out of that program with a strong ability to, to, to write well. So I'm grading, I've graded hundreds of papers and I'm looking at everything for how their sentence structure, grammar, syntax is, do they understand, you know, um, correct tenses and, and, and noun usage. And that's in addition to, are they citing something? Like if something's not common known knowledge and you're writing a graduate level paper and you're bringing information in, 
I want to see a source citation that way. Okay, good. Anyone can look this up and see this is this has a high level of validity. So yeah, um, I will say that those are two strengths that I have, but they didn't come naturally. They just got honed over a long period of time. Okay, because I was just talking to someone in the gym this morning before we hopped on, and he uh, got 101 on the promotional exam for sergeant. And I asked him about his, you know, like what school he went to. And he said he, one of his majors was philosophy. And I was like, oh, there's a lot of reading in philosophy, a lot of reading comprehension. And that's the difference maker when it comes to promotional exams is how well uh, you read because anyone can memorize. That's the answer for this question. Anyone can do that. But the difference maker is the reading and comprehension part. For sure. For sure. Because you have to look at some material and then actually um, synthesize it into usable information quickly. And if you're missing something or you misread it, I mean, um, from 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 the law enforcement profession, if saying you're reading a, um, a an assignment that you're given in maybe a, um, you know, a large um, multi-agency event and you have one role and you misread it, oh, I thought I was supposed to be at this intersection, or, oh, I thought I was supposed to let traffic go through, not stop traffic, whatever. If you if you don't have that ability to be thorough and detailed and analytic, something bad could happen. So mm. um, how do you I develop that, that? How do you develop that ability? It's just, just more reading or like, how do you develop that reading comprehension skill? Um, I think to for starting out, just to focus on looking at what you, sometimes I feel people do multiple things at once and they call it multitasking. And I think research has shown when you're multitasking, none of the things you're doing are getting done to the highest degree possible. Yep. And and I think sometimes people read while they're, I see people at the gym, and I don't know how they do this. They're on a treadmill and they're walking and they got a book in front of them. To me, when I'm at the gym, I'm at the gym. Right. When I'm in front of my computer or in front of a book, I'm in front of the book. I just feel whatever it is, there has to be a focus. And sometimes it starts like if you're reading something like that's then you're reading something on tax law, that's going to be pretty dull to most of us. Um, no offense to those tax professionals out there, but definitely a challenge for me. But I feel the more difficult or more foreign it is to a person, the more they have to be focused and be slower and maybe reread things. And um, and that's that's really important. I think from a teaching point of view, the way we um, there was this person named Piaget, and, and I'm pretty sure I'm, I'll credit the correct person. Um, he said that in order to, for, you could teach anyone anything if you could take something they know and then extrapolate and expand that into what they don't know. So reading is a really good way. If someone's having trouble into, to your question, think of what they do know and see how they can relate it to that. And that helps make it more understandable. Um, I have a friend who's a master um mechanic master carpenter just amazing at what he does and sometimes if i want to talk to him about something that i do that's a little foreign i'll draw from what i know he understands and draw a parallel so again it's mm. just a way that everyone's going to find something that works differently for them but again being able to connect to the known being able to focus not multitask i think those are all part of the recipe what's your next project that you're working on anything uh, it's really um, the course I'm teaching right now. Um, like as I teach a course, I kind of that becomes my focus. And right now I'm teaching, it's actually, it's called leadership in public safety. And we're looking at some key issues of 
you know, how you lead, lead better through collaboration, um, how you deal with issues that are, are morale-based issues and how you, you work through them. And, you know, basically how you, in challenging times, get from where you are or your organization is or your squad is or whatever to where you need to be. And um, so my- I have a question right now, about collaboration. So an order comes down from a chief of the department and he's like, we're going to do things this way now because the administration has changed. And how is, because you've been all the roles, how is the supervisor supposed to collaborate with his, I mean, the direct supervisor, the sergeant, supposed to collaborate with his officers to get their engagement and involvement? I love that question. And that's 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 the chief's responsibility to create buy-in. And the way a good chief should do it is they shouldn't make decisions in a vacuum. They should make decisions and know whether it's a policy driven or something and see how it will be able to be played out from those who will be charged with carrying out whatever that order is. So the first thing should be a meeting with the command staff and hopefully the people, maybe the union president should be there if it's a big, significant change. And um, my department does that for sure. Yeah, it's huge because yeah. from I'll say this from a chief's perspective, we don't want to be dragging people along to go the direction we want for the vision or for what we need to accomplish the mission. We want people to go to the highest degree of willingness as possible. Um, and one of the ways to do that is to have people empowered, have them know that their opinions matter, have them know that um, we can come up with something that maybe works for everyone. There are times where maybe something has to be done that isn't, if it maybe it doesn't align with um, a, a different way, but maybe there's a reason for that. And I think what a, a good chief or leader should do is explain it. We're doing this because X, Y, and Z, but then also put a caveat in there, say, you know what, we'll reevaluate it. If in three months, this isn't working, we'll go back to the drawing board and come up with something else. Because again, I, I feel that a lot of the misnomer is that people think they work for the chief, but a solid chief should be working harder for everyone within their agency. And the job is tough enough, but they should be doing things that'll allow the officers, investigators, sergeants, lieutenants, whomever, to be able to carry out the mission. And if they're creating policies that don't make sense, if they're doing things that are just like, you know, uphill, pushing a boulder uphill, then that's a problem. So succinctly to answer that, create buy-in, make sure decisions aren't made in a vacuum, give people a seat at the table that they can be part of the decision-making process. That's a recipe, I think, more often than not for success. And that creates the collaboration. And my last question for you, I respect your time and I'm so grateful for you hopping on. Uh, if people want to find you, reach out to you, what's the best way? Um, they could find me. Uh, I actually my own um, website. It's uh, dennisnayer.com. It actually was just started out as a, um, it was my um, capstone project when I was doing my master's degree. And then um, it just really became a compendium of where I just wanted to put a lot of the things about, you know, I used to write, a, I published a lot of articles um, both from my community and professional base. So I wanted to have a place where they could all be that if someone wants to read on the escalation, if they want to read on, um, you know, positively promoting and marketing the law enforcement profession, or, you know, one of my favorite articles was the human element of policing and, you know, how you treat people. And 
But I went to the place for all that. So so I have that website. I'm gonna, and, I'm gonna uh, read that. I'm gonna read that one. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's right in there. So there's a section that's it's on um publications and there's two links. One are community um based and one are professional based. And I think that was in my professional based um um publication because I wanted just everyone who wore a uniform in whatever capacity to remember how they treat people makes a difference and to know that you know they're going into situations that the person that they're dealing with they may be angry for a reason and there's something in their life that might not be right or they may be on the edge and I just wanted people to remember how they treat people makes a huge difference um so yeah so there's there there's you know a little gallery page of some of the you know the the gold nuggets I call them throughout my career. Um, but yeah, DennisNayer.com, and I have a um, um, uh, there's a link there that um, people can send me a message and um, and reach out. Dennis, I appreciate you hopping on. Um, you're incredibly valuable. Your service and your time. Thank you so much. I respect uh, your years of service, and I just want to say thank you again. I appreciate you coming on, and I will speak to you soon. Hold on one second. All right. All right, family. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Everyone I interview, I've chosen for you guys because of this story. And I hope that you get some value every single time. If you did get value or just just simply enjoyed the episode, please share the episode with someone that you know. If you know of a guest, a frontline hero that has an amazing story, something uplifting or a positive message, Hit me up in the contact form of www.davidleith.com or DM me at Instagram at davidleith, the number one. Subscribe to the show because I have some really phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks that you definitely don't want to miss. All right, one.